0: Welcome to Conversations with Dr. Jennifer, a collection of interviews on the topics of relationships, sexuality, spirituality, and more, all featuring Dr. Finlayson Fife. Hey everyone, if you haven't yet subscribed to Room for Two, this is your personal invitation to do so. Listening to Room for Two will help you see how to take the concepts I talk about in podcast episodes like this... And in my online courses and apply them to your own life and relationships listening to other couples work with me will help you see that you are not alone in your struggles and will show you what you can do to create change click the link in the show notes to learn more about subscribing
1: okay here on the family brand podcast today i have a guest that I wanted to have for a long time. I'm so excited to have Jennifer Finlay. Thank you for being here today.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Okay, on Family Ran Podcast, we talk a lot about any subject that will build and strengthen families. And today that subject looks like marriage, specifically sex in marriage. And I look to you as the authority, at least in my mind, on this subject. So We've never had this subject on the podcast before, so I'm really looking forward to learning and sharing with the audience everything that I've learned from you. And I know I'm going to learn more today. So, kind of history is I went to Jennifer's. Uh, she had a, she does in person workshops, online courses. We'll get into that later. But I went to a retreat in September with a couple of girlfriends, and it was. Such a great experience, I've been to a lot of personal development things, and I left your workshop feeling like, "Wow, that was maybe the best workshop I've ever <clears throat> been to. It was so good. Mm.
0: So I'm so glad.
1: And you just created such a beautiful space for this one was just women, women to come, share their experience, and learn mm. more about themselves and their sexuality and, and anyway, it was just so good, mm-hmm. and i want wanted to bring that here. yeah, yeah. Great. I'm glad you were there. And I'm glad it was
0: such a good experience. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: So jumping right in, what had you pursue? You're a relationship and sexuality coach. What mm-hmm. you pursue a career in that field?
0: Such an interesting career. Yeah. Yeah. I never would have thought it when I was a kid. So, So I knew at a young age that I cared a lot about the question of what made people happy and also what made people be happily married and i don't know why i was fascinated with that question but i was and i grew up as a latter day saint and i so i there was a lot of uh in my faith there was a lot of focus on the importance of marriage and the value of marriage but i also saw often that there were women that were not happy or that there seemed like there was this sort of disconnect between our ideal and how happily married people were. It wasn't, I I was more attuned into the women, I think, but I think I could see that couples were often didn't seem happy to me. So I think I just cared about that question. And I ended up, after I graduated from college, deciding to pursue a PhD. So I got my PhD in counseling psychology. But I wrote my dissertation on Mormon women or LDS women's experience premaritally and transitioning into marriage around specifically the question of basically women's sense of agency in their sexual relationships. And what I mean by agency is a sense that you're an actor in your life, that you can create the reality that you want, because a lot of women, whether religious or not, often hear the messages that they should conform to the desires of others, that they should sort of give up their wants and their hopes. And there's a lot of value in some respects in this idea, especially if you're parenting and raising children, is that to do it well is often to forsake other ideals, other capacities, other dreams for the benefit of rearing your children well. But a lot of times, you know, I I was interested in when this would almost take on a level of, you know, to be good is to self-sacrifice always, like to let go of your desires, to be needless and wantless in a sense. And most particularly around sexuality, like the really good woman is not that interested in sex. So my dissertation then brought me into the topic area of sexuality. And so that's how I do the work I do, which is primarily, I do, I do, I used to do mental health counseling. Now I'm primarily just doing coaching and instruction online courses, live workshops where I'm working with men, women, and couples around how to create more intimate marriages. Mm-hmm. Yes, I love that. And that's, that,
1: that's exactly, yeah, what I want to get into today, into today. How important
0: is a fulfilling sexual relationship in a marriage? Mm-hmm. Well, it depends a little bit on what one's expectations are of marriage. So that is to say, if people probably when they were out on the frontier, the primary goal of marriage was survival (laughs) for that. So maybe it was less important in a marriage that was much more pragmatic and functional. In our day and age, we have much higher expectations of marriage. And I think there's a lot of value in that fact, because that is that the we expect the marriage to fulfill us at a higher level or to create something much more intimate and rewarding. Now, marriage doesn't have to be that. But the challenge is that most of us desire that and anticipate that. And when it's not there, oftentimes we are the problem on some level because we're not prepared for what an intimate marriage actually requires. And so when you want it and you're not getting it, it can really erode the foundation of a marriage. And so learning what it is to create more friendship, create more of a sense of, of friendship within the marriage is, is really critical for being happy. I've been
1: reading a book by, Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And I, I realized that there's in the recent publications, there's a whole section left out that was originally it was like how to find happiness in, in family or find happiness at, mm. at home. And I found online like then the original version and, and one of his chapters in that um, section is mm. actually all about sex. He calls it he calls it something different. But Mm-hmm. There's this quote in there that I wanted to read and get your,
0: mm-hmm.
1: get your opinion on. So this was published in, like, 1936. Mm-hmm. And he says, sex, says the famous psychologist John B. Watson, is admittedly the most important subject in life. It is admittedly mm-hmm. the thing which causes the most shipwrecks in the happiness of men mm-hmm. and women. Mm-hmm. And I have heard a number of practicing physicians in speeches before my own classes say practically the same thing. Yeah, uh, Isn't it pitiful then that in the 20th century with all of our books and all of our education, marriages should be destroyed and lives wrecked by ignorance concerning this most primal and natural instinct? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's interesting they took
1: it out. I know. I thought so, too. Do you, you know, in, in your work, do you find that that this he called I forget what he calls it in this chapter, but basically if there's these sexual issues coming up that that oftentimes is a big challenge in in marriage people coming to you like how how much does it impact a marriage if they're having these difficult it impacts
0: it a a lot there was some research done I think by can't say his first name right now McCarthy something Brian or something can't remember his (laughs) first name sorry but he did some research on on it's something like you know if the sexual relationship is not going well, it accounts for 80% of the unhappiness in the marriage. Maybe it was like 60%, but it's more than half. A lot, yeah. And if it is going well, it accounts for 20% of the happiness. So it has this like stronger negative effect than it does a positive effect on the overall understanding of what makes the marriage happy. So, you know, marriage is a sexual agreement. It starts out, you know, through sexual attraction at least in modern marriage, it's not arranged. It's not just pragmatic anymore. It's saying of all the people I could partner with, I desire you. I choose you. I want to bring my sexuality to you. And so a lot of us start out under that assumption. But then if for whatever reasons, because of anxieties around sex or difficulty with closeness or issues in the marriage, it's not happening. Well, people take it personally, mostly because it's a connected to desire. Do you desire me? Do you find me attractive? Do you want to be close to me? And if the answer is no, evidenced by a lack of sex in the marriage, it really erodes the foundation. It really crumbles the integrity of the marriage because this foundational question is, I don't want you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's
1: that kind of leads me where where I wanted to go next. I feel like in usually I I do this podcast with Chris, so the audience (laughs) knows knows Chris and I. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like as we've as we've gone through our journey of of marriage, you know, we were each other's first, you know, we were taught abstinence before marriage. We were Mm -hmm. each other's first sexual partner. It's been such an evolution and a learning curve in many instances of what sexual fulfillment and connection looks like and i've seen it change you know when we were first married it was the challenges were different than they were you know when we had a bunch of little kids and things Mm -hmm. and i would love to for for our listeners i feel like i would have loved to have shortened the learning curve like when Mm. when we were like in the in the trenches that like first and i i don't want to make it sound like oh we've You know, it all worked out. All of it, Mm -hmm. yeah, I've got all Mm -hmm. worked out. But I just like to walk through a few of these phases of of marriage and specific challenges Mm -hmm. that they bring in. Would love for you to speak to them, like, um, maybe starting out, like at a at the beginning of a marriage. Like, what challenges do you see in marriages, like regard regarding sexuality? At that,
0: well, the the population I work with is is often marrying with little or no sexual experience, so there are challenges that are just sometimes out of the gate around what does it mean for me to be a sexual person? Mm-hmm. So there's often questions around, is it OK for me to be sexual for men and women sometimes? Is it, you know, something destructive or evil? Is it something kind of un, ungodly in a sense or, un? you know, I'm trying to think of a neutral word, but like, you know, is it something that good people don't do? So I think there's questions around that. There's often questions around gender roles, like a lot of women learn that they should sort of be there for a man's needs. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of those meanings, even if people didn't have much awareness of them shaping them, they're often there shaping how they start to do marriage, whether or not they realize it. A lot of times when you're dating, sexual desire is happening to you. But when you move into marriage, it's. It's not as exciting I can say a little bit about that but like when you're dating there's so much uncertainty and there's so much novelty and you know there's just all this element of anticipation and the potential for good things to come and that all creates desire but then when people get married oftentimes it moves from anticipation and and a and a kind of exciting kind of uncertainty into expectation And, you know, and duty and you owe me and, you know, what about my needs? And it turns into that. And so desire often goes down. And then people often feel like, well, is it okay for me to do things that create desire in me? Because that makes me not a good person, right, to think sexual thoughts or to, you know, cultivate sexual feelings. So that's some of the early challenges around who are we as a couple, who am I as a person? And what do I think about sexuality? And how are we going to negotiate this as a couple? And I you went into this a lot deeper, of course, than your the Art
1: of Desire workshop is mm. that I attended. And just yeah, things just and confronting some of those things that you have held to be true and realizing like, are these are these true? Are these right. beliefs that I've had? Ones that I want to continue holding on to or
0: right. look, at, look right. at. Absolutely. So, a lot of the work I do is helping women and men, because I have a course for men too, but look at the inherited messages often around what it is to be a good woman, what it is to be a good man, what it is. You know, a lot of women see a drop upon becoming mothers because they have a narrative that a mother, a good mother, is selfless, she forsakes things. And if a, a mother shouldn't be sexy. And and this is not like they are saying this to themselves. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of a, an idea that they've inherited and internalized and then are just unwittingly living it out. And so it's easy. Not only is it busy when you become a parent and a little overwhelming and you're kind of losing a sense of yourself in other domains often. But then there can be this added idea that I sh- we should, you know, that that our sexual relationship Our partnership should be secondary to the kids. And a lot of times it becomes a distant second because of of this anxiety that sexuality will interfere with being a good parent. So, yeah, so a lot of the work I do is helping people to see the messages that they've internalized and how it's shaped their choices and their sense of freedom in their lives and in their marriages. Because sexual desire is highly related to a sense of freedom in your life. And so if you have created a relationship to your spouse and yourself that is too constrictive, it's very hard to feel desire. How would you,
1: you know, if if you are maybe in a marriage right now where it is, maybe you do have a lot of little babies, you are busy, how mm-hmm. would you create...
0: Mm -hmm. less constriction and more and more. Mm -hmm. Well, I tend to think of it from two levels. The first is just like the pure logistical element of it, that when you're all hands on deck and you're completely overwhelmed and you're like 24 seven being a parent, you know, it's literally valuable for the marriage and for your mental health to have a break. Like a night you go out, a night you go do something else with Mm -hmm. your spouse, with friends, that you're planning in breaks. Like no, no, any job, no matter how phenomenal to do it 24 seven week after week, you get burnt out. (laughs) Yeah. So everybody needs a break and everybody needs a reminder that they're not just a parent, that they're also a person, you know, Mm -hmm. a woman, a partner. And so the logistical of just creating space for it, even when it feels perhaps trivial compared to the more pressing demands of young children, is just really critical for keeping some space or some, some sense of who you are outside of this important role. The other factor, though, is really thinking about the way people do marriage or the way they're doing parenthood, because some people know that this is an intensive time, but I have these other gifts and abilities and possibilities. But for right now, I'm putting them aside or backburnering them for this more intensive period of raising children. But I know it's temporary. And that's very different than somebody who says, you know, my desires, my feelings and so on aren't that important. And I should Sacrifice for my husband, for my children, for everybody else. That's a different reality. So, both may be women who are sacrificing a lot, but one is doing it from a clear sense of self that exists outside that domain, but is choosing for a period of time to sacrifice some of her other aspects of who she is. And the other person is kind of sacrificing all of themselves as a way of being in the world. Mm -hmm. So, For the first woman, you know, she's going to have a much easier time feeling desire, even in that the busyness of young parenthood, because she has a connection to herself outside of that one role. And so she can find herself more in her own skin and in her marriage. The one that kind of stylistically sacrifices all as a way of being what she believes is good is going to have a much harder time even knowing how one would find desire. Or, how one would create erotic energy within herself or in the marriage, because she's sort of folding into everyone else's reality, and that's antithetical to desire, usually yeah this
1: was so interesting when I heard you explain this because I can see you know a time in in our marriage in my own life where where I think that happened for mm-hmm. me um. You know, I I did choose to, like, I wanted to be a a stay-at-home mom. That is something that I absolutely wanted. Mm -hmm. And I did that role for 10 10 years. But I can see, you know, as I have been able to step a little bit more into maybe just developing myself, like, beyond just, Mm. I don't know, I guess I'll just leave it at developing myself and following, like, interests that I have that it has, I don't know, it's brought so much more to our marriage, to me Mm -hmm. personally.
0: yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's so one of the foundational ideas I talk about a lot is that we want to belong to another person. We want to belong to our family. We want to belong to our spouse. But we really want to belong to ourselves. And human beings want both of those things. So oftentimes we are taught that in order to belong to others, we should sacrifice belonging to ourselves and so when we do that we kind of kill the life force within ourselves you know we undermine our sense of being our own person the integrity of our own selfhood and and that's a big price to pay because you know if you believe that you just should fold into another life to be a good partner soon enough that partnership is full of resentment and full of a feeling of constriction rather than, okay, how do I attend to and honor who I am while being fair to my role, to my children, or being a good partner? How do I manage that tension between those two realities of being true to myself, but being true to others as well? Mm -hmm. And not that that's easy, sometimes the tension between those two realities But it's still an important tension. And oftentimes we will either ask people to yield too much for us or we will yield too much to others. And how do you know if you are? Well, you should. It's a good question. And it's not always clear because some people who are really asking a lot from everyone are highly tuned in to the few people who don't yield. And then they think nobody ever gives me what matters to me. (laughs) But they can't see that they're actually going around demanding a lot. Mm -hmm. I mean, one way to know, actually, is the simple question of if I were to ask my child who gets what they want more, mom or dad, right, what would the child say in an honest moment? The reason I say that way is because you in a marriage where it's pretty balanced, you really are attending to the desires and opinions and thoughts of both people. And there's flexibility around it. But if one person is kind of prevailing more, even if they're doing it from a one down position, you know, like, you know, I have to give up everything. Why do I never get what I want? And that's their way of getting more of what they want. Yeah. Right. That, then that's kind of how, you know, is is it imbalanced? And if it's imbalanced in my direction, why is it imbalanced in my direction? If it's imbalanced in my spouse's direction, why and how do I play a role in that imbalance? Mm-hmm. Something you said a minute ago I'd like to dive
1: just deeper for a second. You mentioned that a lot of times when you start having children there's this understanding that their marriage relationship will will now come second. What is your opinion on that? Like how should it
0: how should it look like ideally? Well, I think that in the very early months of of having a child that Often the sexual relationship takes a bit of a backseat, or at least the marriage relationship shifts when you first have a child. And, you know, the other thing is when a woman is having a baby, right, and she's carrying that baby inside her body, you know, she's building a relationship to another person, to another role, to another identity. And she's often doing it more than the husband is. Because he's not carrying that child inside him. He's often doing much of the same things he was doing before his wife got pregnant. And so there's sometimes a psychological shift that's happening that's very important and really critical for survival. But if the husband resents that, right, and doesn't kind of understand the importance of what's happening, it often, I would say, if he competes with that baby, right, or feels jealous of this larger process, that can actually set in motion a kind of reality where the woman starts to build her bond with the children and away from the marriage. I'm not just saying it's all men's fault or anything, because oftentimes women also like the control and being the epicenter that being a mother is. And so they will also sometimes then use having children to backburner the marriage unnecessarily. So while in those first few months there is a natural backburnering for a small period of time, it's functional. It's not about, it's not because the children and the relationship with the children is more important than the marriage. It's because there's a job to do when you have a child that is so dependent. But the marriage still works together towards that end and therefore is able to readily move back into its primary position once the child is getting a tiny bit older i think it's so interesting that these things can happen
1: but you don't it's not a conscious necessary decision like i'm jealous yeah. an of the baby and right exactly these, i don't think it's so valuable valuable being able to step back and hear you know examine in your life the things that are yeah. done, running on autopilot and realizing like oh there's something yes something here yes Okay, so we think we've talked about newlyweds, you know, with children in the home. I'd like to look forward a little bit. What challenges do you see in a marriage, particularly around like connection and sexual fulfillment, when a family or a couple then progresses in their like empty nesters and their home alone. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. imagine there's
0: sometimes difficulty there, yes, so there's difficulty often on two fronts. One is that, so first of all, raising adolescents is often not easy. My husband was just reading an article last night, and he was talking about people's overall level of happiness. And when they have kids in their adolescence, parents' happiness tends to go down. Mm -hmm. And when when they have empty nesters, their happiness tends to go up, okay? (laughs) I have a firm witness of this. (laughs) Okay, so. So, but, uh, so oftentimes, there are issues that are alive in the marriage that get backburnered, as I'm talking about, and they stay back burnered, and the kids become the focus and then the the resentments and the frustration in the marriage kind of gets sidestepped by making children the focus and whatever challenges the children may be having as the focus, and adolescents can make that especially acute because. It's a it's a kind of you're sort of birthing an adult in mm-hmm. that adolescent period. And it's it's it can be uncomfortable for the whole family sometimes. So oftentimes when that ends, that the primary caregiver is often going through some grief in their identity, if they were a full time caregiver, especially mm-hmm. because they have parented their way out of a role. And so, you know, going back to this idea of belonging to yourself. If your sense of self was really wrapped around your parenting roles, you can often feel at a loss when your children leave. And especially if you've done it in a traditional way, the husband can be at the height of his career and the wife can feel like, I have no career. I'm I'm Mm -hmm. out of an identity. And so that can really be disruptive to a marriage. But that coupled with the loss of the distraction of the children it can be also where it brings what's going on in the marriage to the fore, and it makes it like there's not a way to not deal with the marriage now. It's just the two of us. And so what have we not been dealing with and what frustrations have we been holding on to that now need to be examined? So it is a period where many couples divorce, but it's also a period where other couples kind of step to- You know, go through some conflict and some crisis and have to, don't have to, but choose to deal with things and grow the marriage up. So, a lot of couples do go through that and they get happier as a couple and they start to enjoy each other and they go into having better sex, even though they may be menopausal at that point, even though their bodies Mm -hmm. may not work as easily as their 25 year old body worked. But Nonetheless, the the marriage has, you know, the that sometimes people use that to really make the partnership more solid and to sort of reestablish a deeper friendship. Yeah, I
1: love that thought. Like, I guess going I our baby is six, so I still have a little while. But I think it's helpful to know, like, oh, like so these are some things to anticipate and and look Mm hmm. Look look at. And maybe I should have included a fourth section of the marriage and parenting, parenting adolescence, because you're right. I do. My oldest is 15 right now and almost 14. And it is it. It does bring a different it's different. Like our marriage relationship is different. It used to be like, Mm -hmm. let's put the kids to bed. Then we'll have time. Right. And now it's like, you know, I never go to bed. Yeah, never go to bed. (laughs) (laughs) So so we're like harder. It is. It is. different. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What, and this is a very big, big
0: question, but what makes really good sex? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, so again, going back to this thing that human beings want, we want to feel connected or a sense of belonging to others and we want to belong to ourselves. And very similarly, we want security, like a sense of love and belonging, but we also want adventure. And we want kind of the ability to grow and expand and, and become more ourselves in a way as we grow. So good sex has both of those. There's a basic security to it, like you love me, you know me, you care about me. So really, good sex has good sustainable sex, like good sex that is in a long-term marriage, has this quality of, of truly that it's about loving through your sexuality. So that I love you, you matter to me, you're touching your spouse like like they matter, that they're precious to you, in a sense, and that you're grateful to have them in your life. And it has a kind of playfulness in it and a kind of adventure in it. So there's passion in it. So it's not just, well, it's Tuesday, we have to, it's my duty, you know, Uh, it's not just love. It's also Freedom. It's playfulness. It's excitement. It's being willing to reveal aspects of yourself to be literally intimate, you know, to let your partner in on who you are, to let them in on your erotic mind and to not use that to say you have to be my way or, uh, you know, or you have to do only what makes me comfortable. But you let them in on who you are as a way to find a way to play together. You know, just like kids do. You know, in the sandbox is that they're they're coming up with ideas about how to play together and collaborating and cooperating to do that. And that's also really what good sex is, is that you are creating something that's playful and fun, but also solidifies the security of the partnership. And if you say you've I know sometimes you, you know, you get into
1: a marriage and it's like, oh, we've been doing the same things, like maybe mm-hmm. it's the same dinner, yeah. the same whatever it is, the same. Mm-hmm. We have sex on Tuesdays or whatever. Mm-hmm. How would you recommend someone looks at maybe adding more spice
0: mm-hmm. or more mm-hmm. eroticism to mm-hmm. to their marriage? Yeah, well, one of the big challenges is that we like we like security so going back to that Mm -hmm. idea and we like predictability and oftentimes around something as vulnerable as sex or as exposed as sex we often err in the direction of of keeping it safe so that is we we collude with our spouse in only doing things in the predictable way so we create boring sex in part because we're afraid to show more of ourselves or even know more of ourselves. So, you know, a question I might ask sometimes is like, what's something you've imagined or thought about doing, but you've never told your spouse about? Right. Or what's something that you are curious about, but you've been afraid to name it or say it? Right. And it, it's not, it doesn't have to be big or like, you know, uh, these can be small things, but they're just like the revelation of a part of oneself, something that you, you know, that you, <laughs> like my husband, I won't say what it is because I don't want to embarrass him on a podcast. <laughs> <but> <laughs> I just remember him telling me something, you know, something that like was an idea that really appealed to him when he was like a, a a boy. And it was just like this kind of, you could tell it was like a nine-year-old fantasy, right? It was like at that level, but it was, So cute. And also turned me (laughs) off this idea, turned him on. Right. So it's just it's like he's revealing this aspect of himself, his younger self. But it's also kind of novel and fun. And it just sort of, you know, I'll play with that idea with him sometimes. Right. And so and so, you know, it's just like sometimes revealing aspects of yourself as weird as they may be, like our erotic minds are weird. You know, we we like strange things often. <laughs> the, the things that turn us on are not usually the, you know, how to say it, the, the polite aspects of, of, of you know, they're not, they're not the things we say and think in polite company. And so we can be afraid of some of our sexual thoughts. But what can be amazing about a good marriage is you have a place where you can share yourself, that you can play with. Uh, These ideas, not ever to do anything to undermine the security again, because we need and want that, but ways to increase the novelty and the creativity and the fun. So it just means the short answer to your question is just bringing more of yourself, thinking more creatively, trying on new aspects of yourself. You know, you know, my husband and I would like sometimes co-author a story, a sexual story of the two of us that was. You know, like we're different identities in a way, but we're telling a story that we're making up together that kind of appeals to both of us. And just the process of writing it is exciting. I mean, like we were not writing it down necessarily. We were like speaking it out and making sense of it. That is exciting to do it. And then to play it out is exciting. So there's just a lot of ways, if you dare, to understand your sexual self and share it and find common ground.
1: Mm -hmm. It reminds me of, it was actually at the workshop, a friend that I had had come with, she told us how um, she, a friend had told her about this thing that they do called Fantasy Friday. Mm -hmm. And they take turns like uh, one Friday, it's my, you know, it's the the woman's Mm -hmm. fantasy that she's bringing to, to sex that night. And then the next it's her husband's. But I liked that idea because it was like you were... She's like, it forces me to bring myself on that Friday night, like, whereas otherwise I might, I might not like, it might just be like the same. Right. Well, it takes
0: some courage, you know, so this Mm -hmm. was a different retreat than the one you were at, but we were talking a lot about sort of what are, what is fantasy and what is, you know, is coming up with meanings that turn us on. And so there was a woman in the, in the audience that had not really done much of this and During this period, she made a decision. The plan was that she was going to go stay in a hotel that night before she drove the rest of the way home. And so she, as we were talking about all this, got her phone and texted her husband and said, hey, I heard your wife is out of town. What would you think about meeting up with me in a hotel tonight, you know, before she gets back tomorrow or whatever? You know? <laughs> so she it up, but she said she was like panicked. Like, you know, she knows her husband well, but she's not used to being that playful and that overtly sexual, but she wanted to try it. So this is a perfect way of bringing that novelty. So he, she sends it off. And then he responds and says, you know, capital Y-E-S-S, Y-E-S, yes, you know, I'll be there. And he's like, this is the best text I've ever gotten from you. <laughs> and so she shared it with the group, but it was very really funny. But but, you know, that's exactly it. Like she's she does feel she's going out on a limb. It seems strange. Like this is the person you have a mortgage with and children with. You'd think this should feel safe. But we're so good at hiding our sexual selves and we're Well, it's also just a risk to play that whole thing out and to do this with the person that knows you so well. So, you know, I think as Esther Perel talks about, it's easier sometimes to bring your sexuality to an affair partner because you can walk away from that relationship where the person that you share so much of your life with, it can actually be much harder Mm -hmm. to share and expose these parts of yourself. So the woman at the retreat, she takes this risk, but she's now opened up a whole set of excitement, a whole bunch of possibilities for the two of them that will make them grow closer together. I'm sure of it, that it did. So it looks cool. Mm -hmm. I like that story.
1: You've kind of touched on it, but I'm wondering if you'd had anything else to say about, I was reviewing my notes from the workshop talking about how a need for validation equals low intimacy. Could you Mm -hmm. speak to that a little bit?
0: Yeah. And this is Very much David Schnarch's thinking who wrote the book Passionate Marriage. But he talks a lot about the idea that when we need approval, right, then we're going to when we need approval to feel good about ourselves. And a lot of theorists talk about this, that when we're developing our sense of self, when we're younger in our development resides in other people. We need them to be okay with us for us to be okay with us. Like, I need you to tell me I'm desirable sexually for me to feel okay about myself is one version of it. So when our need for people to approve of us is high, we're going to really limit how much of ourselves we show. We're only going to show the parts that we're already pretty certain they're going to think are okay. And we're going to mask the parts that we don't think they're going to think is okay. So A lot of people say, oh, I love intimacy. I want intimacy. But what they mean is I want to have a person who wants to be close to me, who tells me how great I am. And of course, who doesn't want that, Mm -hmm. right? But really, the definition of intimacy is I'm willing to let you in on who I am, flaws and all, blind spots and all, underdeveloped parts of me. And very few of us want that because it would be inherently invalidating. (laughs) To have someone know where we do stupid things, where we are unkind, where we are underdeveloped. And so we usually in marriage want to be close, but we want to also hide who we are. And so that hiding is often what limits the intimacy development of the marriage. You you use the phrase uh, a sexy
1: self-confronter. Yeah, <laughs> I think that. I love that idea. And I should have you explain it rather than. Sure. Me. But sure. That's yeah. Part of that.
0: Yeah. So self-confronting is this idea of like that you're willing to look honestly at who you are. You're willing to look honestly at your impact. As humans, we're very, very good at tracking, often accurately, the limitations of other people. But we're dumb as doornails about ourselves. <laughs> okay. We're, we're very bad, usually, at tracking who we actually are. Some people actually are bad at tracking in that they think that they are worthless. They think they are, you know, unworthy in a sense. And they're actually not tracking what's real about them. They think they're unattractive and, and they're wrong. They they don't see themselves as they are. But others go up into this. I'm so great. I'm so amazing. When's my spouse going to get it together? You know, it's just amazing. I have to put up with that. <laughs> You know, and they and they're misunderstanding their part in the difficulty of the marriage. And so what is really the greatest gift in a marriage is to do that for your spouse, to be to not just for your spouse, but also for yourself, to be willing to look honestly at who you are and how your limitations impact others negatively and to self-correct. And so, that's very sexy. OK, that, that is when you're married to somebody who's willing to look at themselves, when you give them feedback, they they think about it seriously and they consider what you're saying and they deal with what is true about themselves. Well, it's very attractive because it's deeply loving, but it's also, you know, this person in, is invested in your happiness. That is, I don't mean by this, I don't mean, oh, anything I want, you should do it. OK, not that. But that if your spouse, you can imagine if your spouse is doing something that's compromising your happiness and when you bring it up, they consider it sincerely and address it because they want you to be happy and they want to be a decent person, that's deeply attractive because it's sexy, because it's like it's safe to be with this person. They're willing to be honest. They're willing to be honest with themselves. They're willing to uh, they do care about their impact on you. So. Yeah, so the sexy we gave up bracelets at the retreat. Sexy self runner, <laughs> to just drive it home because so much of the focus of the retreat is who are you in your marriage and how are you impacting the sexual dynamic. Mm-hmm.
1: What would so another takeaway I would love for you to touch on that I had from the uh, workshop retreat was basically said men they would say that nothing turns me on more than to see her turned on. Speaking of mm-hmm. there partner.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: men want to be received. That is a turn on. They not rejection or uncertainty. And women, they say a the turn-on is to be the turn-on, to mm-hmm. build in your own desirability. That's the biggest aphrodisiac. Don't hide your arousal. That's right.
0: Yes. So this is a Esther Perel idea that, yes, that women our our sexuality is a little bit narcissistic in that the feminine position, right? Mm -hmm. which is the more submissive position. I don't mean it's the female position. I'm saying it more from a dynamic frame of yin and yang or feminine Mm -hmm. masculine. But the feminine likes to be the turn on, likes to be desired, likes to be found attractive, to be the one to attract towards her. And so women often, when I'm talking to women about their sexual fantasies, That they're the one that's desired among other options, that they're the one that turns the guy on, you know, that arouses him. And so a lot of women who've been taught the narrative that to be a good woman is to be circumspect and to be modest and to be careful and all that will often perhaps want that, but be afraid of that, afraid of the self-respect in it, actually afraid of the feeling good about themselves. But it's super attractive to men when a woman feels good about herself, owns her attractiveness and lets him worship that attractiveness in a way and for her to receive it. So it's a turn on for her to be the turn on. And then, of course, men are attracted to that, but also they like to know they're received. I think men receive a lot of messaging that they are that their sexuality is perpetrative inherently, that their sexuality is offensive. And so good men, men that don't want to do harm with their sexuality, to actually be received, to say, you are desirable to me, like I'm desirable, I woman, but I find I receive you, I want you. That's highly arousing and validating. And so that's often the the core dynamic of a good yin and yang. I, I talk about this too, just sort of what is the dynamic of desire and it's often this actor and acted upon desirer and desired you know that kind of thing so that's often a core dynamic of of masculine feminine energy i am thinking so
1: just going back to my own experience there were a lot of years where you know i did feel tired like with the babies and it would be like sure. and maybe that's my was my excuse about it but it's like there was a time where being told like i'm too tired tonight like often enough it creates like well i'm not desired mm. like maybe yeah. like I, Chris and I had conversations feeling, something like well, i don't think you desire me anymore like i feel mm-hmm. like
0: mm-hmm.
1: undesirable what would you say yeah where yeah. would you
0: from there well one thing that i have found in talking to a lot of women and this may not always be the case of course because it can be exhausting when you're up all night. And, you know, to make time for sex can be challenging. But but one of the core things that I have seen in working with women is that women so often experience sex not as a place of being taken care of, but another person to take care of. So they've taken care of kids all day, and then they need to take care of their spouse on some level. And it's not enough in the opposite direction, which is, this is my time to be taken care of by my spouse, right? To be given pleasure, to be able to surrender to that desire, that affection, that that arousal. And it's I think, the shift. More, yeah, it's a big shift in how a lot of women think. And so, you know, I, to be honest, when I was raising kids, it was intense. I have a special needs child. It was a lot. But for me sex was so much that meaning that I made time for it, not for my husband's needs, but for my needs, (laughs) because it was a time for me to be able to be given to, to be cared for, to sort of reconnect with my husband. And because that was a source of strength for me to do the harder work of raising the kids during the day
1: yeah I love that. And I could see you know at the time I wasn't looking at it like like that. It was more like, i have been nursing this baby all day yeah. <laughs> it's like right attending like attending right. to all of these things, and it was just like another another need, I guess that I felt like was yes and like not looking at it like what what are we going to create together like
0: to make, yes, like
1: a beautiful connection.
0: And I think the other piece of that can sometimes be not feeling attractive during mm-hmm. that period. You know, you're nursing, you feel like you're leaking everywhere. You're just mm-hmm. like, you know, your baby spit up on you. It's very hard to feel sexy. And I totally understand it. I think honestly it gets a lot easier once you're out of that early stage of parenting. But I remember my sister, I was like 9 months pregnant and I was talking to my sister about the fact that having intercourse like was was my plan for for getting the baby to come. And she's like, I do not understand how you could possibly get turned on basically looking like you look. <laughs> and so I just said, listen, I just, I said, I just fantasized that I'm skinny. And she's like, wow, that is like some imagination you have. So, <laughs> but that I would often like, no matter what I actually look like, I would just imagine like, okay, just ch- channel my sexy self, even if it's under a lot of st- you know, I don't know under a lot of uh, roles post-pregnancy and so on. Just channel that part of me that knows that I am attractive, like that I am a worthy and desirable person. So I think that helps too if you can give yourself permission to just step into it and not go into that sort of self-critical lens either.
1: Yeah, that's a great, great point. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're listening to this episode and you realize like oh, I do want to level up in this this area. What, of course, I mentioned earlier your courses, you have a Strengthening Your Relationship course, Enhancing Sexual Intimacy, The Art of Desire for Women, which I attended, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. Art of Loving. You also, part of me wanted to have you on to talk about how to talk to your kids about sex because Mm -hmm. we talk a lot about parenting and I know that you have an awesome Mm -hmm. course about that too. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. Is there any other places you would recommend someone could go if they're if they're wanting to really look at this and make some changes.
0: Yeah, so well, so there's the online courses and then I also have a podcast. It's a, oh, a yes. p- subscription podcast called Room for Two in which I'm working with couples around mm-hmm. marital and sexual issues. So they're talking about the challenges they're facing around desire and that kind of thing and I'm giving my input on you know what I think is happening in the marriage and what they can each do and and a lot of people, that's $97 for the year. A lot of people find that to be very helpful for being able to, at a low cost, to be able to yeah. look at their marriage and see themselves and other people, which both is normalizing, but it also helps them to see themselves and say, okay, that's like us. We do that. Yeah. And it gives you some idea about what you need to do differently to change the pattern. Yeah. And I... I subscribed to that
1: as and mm-hmm. I have I have really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Is there any other like foundational books or, uh, yeah, just books I guess you would recommend? Yeah, well,
0: I would recommend any of David Schnarch's books, Passionate Marriage, Intimacy and Desire, are two that are very good. For Women, Come As You Are is a good book. I can't say her name right now. Give me one second. I'll think of it. <laughs> I, I
1: actually just started listening to this on Audible. Based on you know the discussion, at uh, Yeah, the retreat. You have
0: the author's name? It's Emily Nagoski. Is that is that what it is? Yeah, it just came to me. Yeah, I think okay. it's Emily. Yes. yes, Emily Nagoski. Come as you are. I feel like there's another one, but I can't think of it right now. So I would suggest those. Yeah, those, those good, are all great. great. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Um. Any the final thoughts for for a couple listening who is wanting to look at enhancing their connection. Yeah sexual
0: intimacy? Well, I would say two things. Like the first is that it's a worthwhile pursuit and this is not produce the sex. So the higher desire partner in the marriage isn't miserable. That's not the right idea. It's how do we create something that feels like both a place of coming home and a place of expansion? Like how do we create sex worth wanting? What are we each doing that's interfering? How are we each not? participating in a way that's creating something stronger and better. The other thing I would say is that the, this is a, a, also a schnarch idea. The challenges in your sexual relationship are often a microcosm of some of the larger challenges in the marriage. So often they reveal where you as a couple are limited and I don't mean that in a kind of judging way. I'm saying that it shows the areas that you need to grow. So using the challenge of the sexual relationship to grow yourself up, to see where you can be a limited person, right, can help not just your sexual relationship, but it can help every aspect of the marriage and, you know, really becoming someone more capable of love and desire. Could you, um, on the spot, I'm like, I love that idea
1: can you think of a of an example of how what that might look like for a couple of using that
0: microcosm so for example this just in my mind because i just worked with this couple today he's very he she handles her anxiety in life by yielding to other people i'll do what you want just be happy with me it's what she grew up learning to do and she just intuitively does it but then she feels resentful because she's disappearing Mm -hmm. So sex for a long time was just kind of accommodating her husband. The husband handles his anxiety by getting people to do what he wants. Right. So he's always like coming up with ideas that the wife then fears because she's afraid that those ideas are now going to become the new dictates of her life. And so this is so one of his presenting concerns was she didn't. She was anxious in sex, that she didn't ever want to surrender to him, and that it didn't feel passionate enough. Well, the sexual relationship was showing the way that this dynamic played out, not just in sex, but in the whole marriage, where he would be blind to his own form of taking because he'd put it in the frame that I know what would make our sexual relationship better? I know what would make our marriage better. I know what you need to do. And she would just intuitively kind of do it. And so that was the pattern that needed to be broken. And so it's in seeing it in sex, seeing it outside of sex, and for him to wake up to the fact that he handles his anxiety through a kind of taking that he goes blind to, calls it just standing up for good. Mm -hmm. And she handles her anxiety by just sort of accommodating and yielding to get the conflict to go away, get his anger to go away, but then feeling like there's no room for her in the marriage or the sexual relationship, therefore never wanting to surrender to his desire. She's always anxious when she's with him because he's a hard person to settle down with. So it's helping him see this. She already owns, yes, I'm weak, and that's easy for her to see, and she needs to step up and kind of claim her own mind. On his side, it's harder because it's masked in his mind as strength when in fact it's a kind of taking and it's limitation. So it's just a good, it's a way of seeing it and then changing it. And then what happens in couples is that, and I've seen this is just one version, but I see this in this pattern in a lot of couples, so that as people self-confront, stop that pattern. Don't handle their anxiety by pressuring the other person. Well, they become easier to be close to. They become easier to actually, you know, collaborate with because you feel like when I talk about when I talk about my idea, you don't just shut it down because it's not your idea. And so then it becomes easier to be present and to be open and to be playful. Right. Think how hard it is to be playful in a dynamic where you feel like, you have to yield to the other person to keep them happy. There is no play; totally, it's just duty. So, so yeah, so that's that's an example of one dynamic, and that I've worked with many couples who do that precise one that grow into more collaborative marriages and sexual relationships.
1: Yeah, that was helpful to be able to see. Yeah, how that one glimpse is actually yeah. bigger. Yeah. Okay, I do have one last question. I it's something I wanted to touch on, and I hope I'm not. It, doesn't feel forced right here but you talked a lot at the beginning of your workshop about how talking about human development how Mm we it's desirable for us to become self-authoring yeah and i would i'd maybe like to kind of end with with that thought like what does just this idea of we talk about this in family brand a lot like becoming the family they want to be defining who you want to be But at your workshop, it hit me, I guess, for the first time around Mm self-authoring, like in a marriage specifically, like a sexual
0: partnership. Can you maybe just talk a little bit about about that idea? So just going back to this idea of playfulness and freedom, if it's not in you, you know, you're going to feel trapped by your need for approval. So the developmental idea is when we're first born, our sense of self is in others. We aren't yet able to hold a sense of self independent of what other people tell us about ourselves. But in marriage, going back to the couple I just talked about, for example, each of them, when they're in their more limited place, their sense of self resides in the other. So she's trying to yield to his mind in order to get the picture from him that she's the right kind of wife. But when she does it, she feels like maybe she belongs to him, but she loses her sense of self. <laughs> and he tries to get a sense of self by getting her to yield, by validating that he's desirable and puts pressure on her when she doesn't, because that's his way of saying, it's not me, that's the problem, it's you. So that's, that's his limitation. For them to grow up is to say, I've got, you know, for him to say, I'm, I'm unfair, I take too much. I extract from my wife in the name of strength. That's to move from an external to an internal reference. That's not the man I want to be. I want to be better. So he's going from you tell me that I'm good to I have to do what I need to so that I know that I'm being good and fair. For her, it would be not trying to get everybody to tell her she's okay by yielding to them, but being willing to stand up for and claim her own mind. So those are. that's how when couples move into a deeper self-authoring, there is more freedom in the marriage and more ability to be close. It's like a little bit paradoxical. You can be most closer mm-hmm. and feel more deeply yourself. And that's what happens as you start to genuinely self-author in your life.
1: That's beautiful.
0: Thank you. I really appreciate
1: you being here today and sharing with us your wisdom and knowledge and all everyone i will put all the links to connect with jennifer finlayson five and her work i've really benefited from it personally and thank you for your time today and sharing with us
0: yeah thanks for having me thank you so much for listening if you enjoyed today's episode we ask that you please rate review and share the podcast so that more people can find and benefit from dr jennifer's work